99.6% of the workforce across generations want to work with one another. They want to work with people that are generationally diverse. So the desire is there, the, 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 the dream or the ambition or the hope that they will be able to work together and at the same time, you know, both feel equally heard, equally valuable, equally respected, equally needed, um, is there. That was the voice of Raquele Focardi, author and expert on multi-generational divides. It's a topic that continues to plague corporations that now more than ever need to attract and retain great talent. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. Each week, we bring you conversations to help crack the code on corporate purpose and future fluency. Asia is at the epicenter of this debate, and companies in the region will prove key players in the quest for a more sustainable and inclusive future. Raquel, founder of XYZ at Work and author of Reframing Generational Stereotypes, sat down with me to discuss many of the challenges faced by modern corporations when it comes to identifying, understanding, and incorporating the growing needs of an increasingly diverse workforce. A lot of attention has been paid to gender and racial diversity in the workplace, but generational differences are sometimes underappreciated. My guest argues that this could prove a grave mistake, particularly at a time in history where young talent armed with technology, a gig mentality, and social agendas have choices. Increasingly, she argues, and I quote, the value of an organization doesn't lie in its assets, but in its people. There's not an organization that doesn't play lip service to that idea, but how many are actually backing it up, investing in their employees not just because it's good business, but because it's the right thing to do? Here's our conversation. We're going to talk today about uh, generational divides. Why is this a subject that caught your attention? Well, first of all, this is a subject that's extremely personal to me. Um, I grew up, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up in Italy, which unfortunately is not a country that has or has shown in the past a lot of appreciation for young talent. And I experienced firsthand the um, environment that young talent coming out of university has to experience when they join the workforce. I was, you know, obviously the rookie. Um, I joined um, an organization in Italy after graduating from the United States with a lot of ambition, a lot of drive, a lot of determination, a lot of desire to, you know, put what I've learned to, to practice and to, to learn new things. And uh, I realized that that was something that was frowned upon um, at the time. As a, as a new rookie in the workplace, uh, the expectation from the older generations in the workplace was that I would just follow around and... Uh, you know, learn through 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 watching from the sidelines, and uh, and I realized how frustrating that could be. And uh, and sometimes I, I think of myself and where I am today, and I think that perhaps if I had, you know, been raised or if I'd started working in an environment that uh, appreciated me for my ambition and my drive and my determination, and I had worked alongside managers and and older generations that were encouraging me, uh, maybe my life would have been a little different. So it was serious to you to the point where you took it on. Professionally, you walked into a world where you started to looking at these differentiations, these changes, these human resource issues, which were creeping up for corporations and organizations. So, by extension, were you did you anticipate this is where you were going with this, or by being thrown into the middle of this industry, you recognized there's a gap? 
Oh, I was thrown into it. I had no idea. Uh, but I have a one distinct memory, actually. I remember it was 2002, and I had recently graduated from university, and I landed in Milan uh, from the U.S., and I saw a big poster at the airport. It was an ad from HP. And I remember that it said, be yourself, be an inventor. And I remember that I was extremely mesmerized by this ad because it wasn't promoting um, a product or a solution. It was just giving people that were seeing it the impression that by joining that organization, you could become something. And this is when I fell in love with employer branding. And then years later, I guess this was my path. So I ended up joining an employer branding consulting firm. And, uh, and I was lucky because I joined in 2005, in 2006, is when millennials started exiting the universities and entering the workforce. And, you know, as we know, millennials came up or came out and took everybody, you know, uh, by surprise. Explain that, employer branding. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so employer branding is, 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 is similarly to consumer branding. It aims to position the organization as a place, as the ideal place to work. So organizations started to realize, and this stemmed from McKinsey's, you know, talking about war for talent as a strategic business imperative. But the idea was, well, you know, the uh, assets of an organization don't lie in its, you know, or the value of an organization doesn't lie in its assets, but it lies in its people. And so as a result of that, how do we make sure that we position our organization as the ideal place to work so that we can make sure that the ideal talent or the best people out there that we will need in order to make our business grow are going to want to join our organization. So as opposed to positioning your company because you have the best products or solutions, you position your company because you are the best place for people who really want to make a difference uh, to work. Hasn't that always been the case, or did we arrive at a point where there was competition for talent to such a degree that uh, companies had to spend time and energy to, to position and to brand themselves accordingly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, we definitely came to a point, and I think that point was, was around the early 2000s. But, I mean, up until that time, you know, people were, were considered, I mean, people, you know, we still had a little bit of the, you know, old-style mindset that, you know, people need to work, uh, you know, as a chain, and they need to deliver, and they have to exhibit technical skills and do kind of only what they're supposed to do. And then, you know, all of a sudden, with digitalization, with transformation, with everything that's been going on with the economy, there started to be the need for a complete different type of, of persona. Somebody that had multiple skill sets, that had the ability to be technical, but also think outside the box. Um, and all of a sudden, organizations started to realize that these people are not that easy to find. Also, because if we look at it globally, uh, we weren't coming from an educational system that encouraged a lot of these skills. Uh, and all of a sudden, being able to have first dibs on this type of talent became critical. And then furthermore, I think also organizations started to realize the importance of cultural fit. Um, you know, in the past, and this is also very generational, but people didn't choose an employer based on whether they would enjoy working there or they thought they would have a friendly boss, but they joined an employer because, you know, it paid the salary, it gave them opportunity for advancement and so on and so forth. But companies at one point started to realize that a happy workforce is a more productive one. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, two organizations take a Deutsche Bank and a Goldman Sachs maybe in the same industry, um, the people they may want to hire are completely different. And in the past, it was just all about, you know, 
know, GPA and, and university. So all of a sudden it became important for organizations to say, how do we position ourselves not only as an organization where people can come and get a paycheck, mm. but also as a place where people can come, be themselves and be happy. Yeah, it's, you know, for someone who's on the tail end of baby boomers, uh, it's hard to understand this wellspring <laughs> of uh, around diversity. Uh, and let me be clear on this. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not diversity itself. It's way overdue. So I'm, I'm on board with that. But what's difficult to grasp is the subdividing of gender, ethnic, generational categories. Uh, what, what's going on with this? And, and, and can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we, we come from a time when um, everybody was kind of trying to fit in. And if we look at the workplace, I mean, at the end of the day, and I remember as a Gen X coming out of university, but I remember career services very clearly telling me, you know, and handing me books that told me exactly what kind of questions companies would ask and how I was expected to respond. So the concept about being authentic or really being hired for being you, I mean, that was, that, that, that just didn't exist. I mean, you were expected to fill, you know, to wear a certain mask, to, to, to fill, fit a certain mold, and, and everybody was trying to fit that environment. And then I think millennials very much changed that. I mean, they're the first generation that rose up and decided that diversity is a strength. So prior to millennials, if you were to ask the average Gen X or baby boomers to self-identify, or classify themselves based on their ethnicity or diverse attributes or even sexual orientations, most of us would choose, you know, prefer not say, because no matter what we'd say, we'd feel that we'd get discriminated one way or the other. Um, and I think millennials changed that. I mean, they're the first generation that rose up. They were proud of their diversity. They were excited to address issues such as, you know, sexuality or even mental illness is something that is no longer taboo thanks to this generation. So all of a sudden, it's interesting because if you ask previous generations, Janek and baby boomers, how do you define diversity? They would have said it's gender related and it's, um, you know, ethnicity based or religious based, depending on where you are. But for millennial, it was my personality. Mm -hmm. My personality is what makes me different. My background, the way I was raised, my cultural uh, differences. Um, and they brought them with them into the workplace and they forced everybody to accept uh, that diversity is indeed a strength. Yeah. And for, for, you know, over a decade, I worked in executive search and, you know, senior leaders, CEOs, others who are looking to hire people into the workforce and you talk about these things to some degree and in, in, in the recruiting process and, 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 and coach them in terms of the types of questions, the types of exchanges that would be required to attract somebody and there would be a rolling of the eyes. I mean, not a lot of tolerance for it. Um, and, and even now I still see a lot of people saying, listen, you know, that, that, that belongs in your social circles or you're your, you know, your, your outside of the workplace. Why do we need to bring that inside? Why is all that's so important. It's hard for people who are, you know, late 50s, early 60s, who have been leading and growing business for a long time to really grasp why this is so incredibly important for millennials. What is it that's changed in the world which uh, has led the millennials to say this is essential and a part of who I am and therefore something that needs to be incorporated when I search for and land the right job? Well, I mean, if you think about it, millennials, you know, came came to age or entered the workforce, exited universities, however you look at it, in a very unique time in history. I mean, this is a time when we had a lot of uh, global, uh, you know, challenges from, you know, climate change, which started to become an issue, you know, global warming, you had um, the war on terror, you had, um, I mean, let's look at even the dot-coms. I mean, that was a big uh, kind of heartbreak for most of us, Jeanette 
Xers who believe that, you know, we could show that young people could do something valuable and, 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 and walk outside of the usual kind of corporate path. So there was a bit of this sense of, you know, things need to change. And then, you know, they started to also see um, the result of this, uh, you know, approach to, to work on their families. I mean, they, they were raised by parents that very often were divorced. I mean, obviously, Gen X was the first generation with divorced parents, but this became more predominant with millennials, fundamentally because, you know, they disconnected because, you know, both parents were working and didn't have time for one another. Um, they saw parents, you know, give up on uh, life dreams or put them off until retirement because, you know, they had to work and put every penny aside. Um, in the U.S., we know, and this is where millennials first kind of set foot, but we know that there's not a lot of, it's not very generous when it comes to vacation days. So all of a sudden, they saw that their parents had all these dreams that were unmet and all these things that they never get, got to do. And uh, and I think 2008 really kind of sealed that for them. Uh, you speak and others speak of millennials um, in universal terms. Yeah. Are, are these traits in, uh, consistent across countries uh, and regions, or is it uniquely a Western phenomenon? No, by now they're they're quite consistent. So the thing about generations is they're shaped by large-scale events. So if we look at every generation up until the millennials, I agree that there are definitely differences um, to be experienced across different parts of the world. But that's fundamentally because the world was relatively segregated. So it was very hard for a baby boomer in the 50s or 60s who lived in America to even manage to grasp what a baby boomer or a peer in Europe or in China or in India may be going through. I mean, the socioeconomic, the political, political system, everything was so different. However, with, you know, globalization and then furthermore with the internet, uh, the world started becoming much more connected. So it started to become very easy for a millennial who was sitting in the U.S. while gaming, perhaps, to have conversations with somebody sitting in Malaysia or sitting in China. And so what happened is that um, all of a sudden talent across the world started to understand and share. Uh, pop culture started to be more, more, more relatively uniform across the world. And so, uh, so if we look at it today, Day. I mean, millennials, I would say, exhibit most of the same characteristics around the world. It took a few years in the U.S. Millennials entered or started, you know, in, in, in the early, uh, you saw them entering the workplace in 2005, 2006. It took maybe, you know, a few more years for them to, to, to be really seen in Europe and then a couple years more to be seen uh, in Asia. But uh, ultimately, they all got to the same place. And when we look at Generation Z right now, if we look at most uh, uh, first, um, you know, uh, developed countries, or even developing or emerging markets, um, the attitude, the approach, uh, the mind frame is relatively consistent. Yeah, these generational divides are very real and very significant, uh, so much so, so that you wrote a book on it, uh, Reframing Generational Stereotypes, which just came out recently. Um, in there, I find your tone very personal. I mean, it, it almost feels like you're, there's a level of frustration <laughs> to some degree, and which, which comes out, right? Because, and, and it's, like, it's like you've experienced this, you've been and you're almost an advocate yeah. to some degree for this millennial group and others that have followed. Why do you feel so strongly about this? Well, I mean, like I said, for me is 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 very personal because I experienced it firsthand. Uh, but um, and maybe because I did have a pretty negative experience coming into the workforce, exactly because of the segregation in the workforce, where you know if you're not experienced, you have nothing worth saying, nothing worth listening to. And the reason why I fell in love with millennials is because millennials force the world to recognize mm. that young people matter, and young people do have interesting things to say, and they have. They 
they can make a difference and they can contribute and they can start companies and you know they should be heard um, and, and this is something that maybe I've experienced as a frustration myself when I was in the workplace and I wanted to be the one to be heard and I wanted to be the one to be you know developed and 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 invested upon and I and I didn't exactly get that uh, but I think what happened when Millennials came into the workforce and they started demanding for change is you know organizations started to adapt and I remember you know as if it were yesterday the second that I saw the first set of data coming out about millennial preferences and how they really wanted things to be different and I started thinking to myself wow if companies start to um, react as a result of this even selfishly just for the purpose of being able to bring them in and grow the business I mean, they can really change the world. And I think if we look now at how things have changed compared to 15, 20 years ago to today, where people can pretty much take for granted that they're going to have a fulfilling career to some extent, that they're going to be listened to, uh, that they're going to be trained, that they're going to be developed, that they're going to have bosses that will try to understand them, that they will be able to be themselves. I mean, this is something that seems like a dream to me. I would have I never imagined this as a possibility when I was in my early 20s, and that wasn't that long ago. So. Uh, uh, so I think what they managed to do is incredible. And I, I myself still struggle with millennials sometimes because their mindset is just very different from mine. And I'm married to one, so I, I deal with that on a daily basis. But but it's exceptional. I mean, they, they literally changed the world through the workplace revolution. And, uh, and I think that's just the start. I think in reality, they planted the seed for Gen Z coming in to achieve even greater things. So their demands are succeeding. They, by virtue of standing up and being counted, are actually getting the responses from corporations they'd want. They're getting all these things, the training, the support, the friendliness, the uh, all of those aspects of the, the work-life balance, things that they're asking for, they're receiving for the most part. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. this has been my, my work for the last 15 years as I worked for an employer branding consulting firm. But, you know, I worked, you know, on and off throughout the years with close to 2,000 organizations who came to me and said, you know, we how are we going to do this? How can we position ourselves as an employer of choice? How can we beat the Googles of the world? How can we make sure that we ourselves uh, become the type of employer where these people can come and feel happy, where they're going to want to stay, um, and, and hence, uh, you know, that are going to grow our business? So absolutely. Within the corporate purpose framework, which is getting a lot of attention these days, employee rights and engagement is a big topic. Um, can you describe the changing expectations of millennials, Gen X and Z uh, compared to baby boomers? Like how how is within the corporate purpose framework are these types of expectations being met and are they being um, monitored and reported publicly to the degree that uh, corporations are getting more attention than they might have otherwise received? From a, from a purpose and impact perspective? Yeah, or? because now that, that so much of the corporate purpose is about um, tracking, monitoring, reporting, being more transparent about what you are or aren't doing for your stakeholders, employees being one stakeholder group, um, to what degree are, are there, it's, it's almost like another form of corporate branding, isn't it, or employee branding, where you're putting yourself out there and saying, this is who we are, and here's the data to support who we are. Is that driving and, and uh, creating a better situation for corporations that are on that path when it comes to retaining or uh, recruiting, retaining uh, and, and developing these types of uh, younger generation uh, employees. 
Absolutely, absolutely, and it goes far beyond that. I mean, I, I mean, right now, and I always said it, and I'm waiting for the day that it's going to be, you know, a, a widespread. But I mean, I believe employer branding is going to take over consumer branding at some point. I mean, the lines are blurring, and they're going to merge. I mean, at the end of the day, think about it. Um, you know, as an organization, right, especially when it comes to the new generations who really want to work for organizations where they can be themselves, that respect, the, you know, their people, and furthermore, Generation Z now really wanting to work for organizations where they can fulfill some type of purpose, where they can change the world. Future consumers are a lot more likely to want to join an organization that positions itself as a place where its people are happy, where they can work on things that matter in ethical environments with ethical practices than, you know, just because you sell a good product. So absolutely. So organizations are absolutely being held accountable for this. I mean, they realize that this is super important. There's companies out there that actually report uh, where they rank as an employer of choice uh, to their stakeholders mm. and they have clear targets for that. So, so you're not just saying it's the right thing to do, it's an essential thing to do in order for companies to survive and thrive. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. I mean not uh, becoming uh, not becoming a people focused organization, not really caring about your people, not making sure that you know everyone coming into the workforce you know feels respected, feels able to contribute to something bigger than themselves. Uh, they're just not going to be able to make it. I mean, I think you know if we go back 20 years ago, maybe that was a nice to have, uh, but today is uh, is absolutely fundamental. It, 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 and again, it sounds like this is widespread and universal, but I still know there are industries and organizations that are less receptive to this and, and, and frankly will default into um, that the amount of money they can give somebody, financial services, oil and gas. Um, I'm not you know, going to call out specific companies, but you can see trends mm -hmm. across some of these different type of industry groups or say, we're not going there giving people enough money and, and some job security is enough. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that unfortunately they're going to be hit by reality if they haven't already. I mean, I've worked with so many organizations over the year where, you know, people that were in charge of talent acquisition understood and saw and experienced firsthand how challenging things were getting and how important it was for organizations to become that people-focused organization and position themselves as, as employers of choice and ideal employers, uh, but met a lot of resistance um, at, the, at the senior level of the organization because the perception was still that, hey, you know, we are who we are and our brand is really strong and people should be uh, you know flattered to be able to work for us and if they don't work for us then we don't want them anyways and I received the same call from the same companies uh, or, or calls from the same companies a few years later telling us okay now we're ready to press the button we got the budget we've got the commitment we got to do it and I remember saying well what happened and, and and being told well you know our offers are getting rejected now and our top people are leaving you know in favor of organizations that are a lot less quote-unquote prestigious you you know, by, by old standards uh, that are not even our direct competitors that are from completely different industries. Some are, some are even nonprofits, and uh, and the business is is literally freaking out. And I remember back in those days thinking, well, you know, this is 10, 15 years too late. Mm. It's going to be really hard for you to 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 position yourself that way yeah. if you've been so resistant up until now. Um, and 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 one thing that I think is important to note as well is that, and 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 maybe we can talk about this in a minute, but. The reason why it's so important right now from a from a generational perspective is because a lot of this transformation was f driven by and for the new generations. Mm. 
Mm. Um, yeah. yeah well, let's come to that. Um, I mean, in, in the meantime, you know, there, there's nothing like a few live examples to bring the possibilities mm -hmm. to life. Um, you've researched quite a few companies uh, that are implement, implementing some significant changes. Can you pick one that's uh, getting it right and explain what this entails? Well, I mean, th there's a few, right? I, I one company that I, you know, have a lot of respect for and always look up to is Unilever. Um, I, you know, in my 15 years, you know, working with Unilever, I, I, I've been able to see, you know, how progressive they have been and how quickly they have been to adapt. But one thing that uh, always struck me about Unilever um, that I think is fantastic and is a really great example of intergenerational collaboration, but also an investment towards youth, was a few years ago I was invited to um, their intake for this program, UFLP, which is a Unilever Future Leaders program, where they identified top talent from across the world, in this case it was Asia and Australasia, and they bring them into the organization and they, um, you know, give these students a kind of opportunity to rate, rotate across functions, across businesses, to learn and so on and so forth, and ultimately they become leaders of their own brand or so on and so forth. And I remember when I was being invited there that there was a, a group of, of kids who had just been intaken, and I remember one of the leaders standing up and saying, well, this is a future leaders program. And what we want to make sure you understand is that we have no specific idea of what type of leader we want you to become. We don't have that answer, and we're not here to mold you into any of us. So what we want to do is we want to be able to give you exposure to all types of leadership. We want to get you to work alongside many different people across the organization, across all generations, age group and functions. And we want you to be able to take from each what makes sense to you, what feels right, and then basically combine this to become your own type of leader. And I remember really having goosebumps of somebody who would have dreamt uh, an opportunity like this, the idea that an organization would say, we're not here to indoctrinate you just because we're senior and we're successful. We don't want you to emulate us or become mini-me's, yeah. but we want you to experience us and, and learn from us and take what you think will be necessary. But at the same time, we want you to show us what leadership in the future is going to look like. So experience and exposure as means to derive your own form of leadership, um, one that you cultivate yourself, not uh, not basically be handed the kind of, the, here's the white book, here's the playbook, this is the way we do it, this is why we're successful. So it's really from the bottom up instead of the top down. Absolutely, and I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I mean, if you think about it, just the idea that uh, that you're hiring people based on their potential, and that all you're there to do is to um, support them in kind of uncovering or unveiling that potential. Um, is, is just incredible and, they are, and, they're, and, and, and fundamentally I mean I think this shows also that the organization understands that you know the leadership that was successful 10 years ago is not necessarily the leadership that will be successful today and the same will, will be for the future and so if organizations need to transform um, you know th they need to be able to take a cue from the new generations coming in because those are the ones that will be leading the future. So from a development perspective I see the value of what Unilever is doing however when it comes to the broader implications of the world World, I don't see, and maybe you can explain to me why working with a packaged goods company is something that basically meets your highest ideals of what the world needs to become. 
Well, I think, I mean, there's a number of different things. Obviously, we've seen Unilever and how committed they are to sustainable goals. So obviously, you know, there's a lot going on there and a lot of commitment from a corporate perspective. Uh, but I mean, the, the, you, you can look at it from a, from a lot of different uh, ways. I remember a quote from Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> a few years ago where he was saying, you know, as a millennial, I want to feel that I'm working on the most like purposeful and important thing that I could possibly be working on in that specific moment in time. And if I don't feel that that's the case, then, you know, I'm just going to feel bored and I'm going to want to want to leave and I won't be motivated. So I think there's a lot of different different cases, right? So, I mean, when it comes to Unilever, uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's easy in a way because they are very committed. Um, also, as an organization, they are constantly trying to identify new ways, new solutions to develop different types of packaging that is greener, that is, um, uh, you know, one, one, one of their products, Lifebuoy, for example, meant to um, eradicate death by dysenteria uh, in, in certain provinces of India just by helping and educating people about how to wash their hands and so on and so forth. So, you know, we can go on and on about this. There's a lot of different ways to show purpose in what you do. But ultimately, it's also about showing purpose in the little things. I mean, think about it. You know, every young person joining an organization is going to have to work on some boring PowerPoint at one point or another. But just having a leader that helps you contextualize, you know, the importance that getting this PowerPoint right is going to have on the business because if we do it well, if the point comes across in the right way, if we can get that stakeholder buy-in, then this is all that we're going to be able to do together. You know, it's very different than saying, hey, you know, be my typist and here's a bunch of things and put it together and deliver it on time and then shutting the door and not giving the person the opportunity to know what happened after that was delivered. So I think there's a lot of different ways that organizations need to be able to identify what purpose means for them. And I think this is, this is is exactly the point. Um, the same thing happened with millennials and work-life balance. I mean, a lot of companies were freaking out because they never thought that they'd be able to compete with a Google because, well, we just don't have massage parlors and, and, and massage rooms and game rooms and bars in our, in our office. And I remember what I used to tell them is, listen, I mean, everybody understands that your industry, if you're in investment banking, for example, is tough and nobody's going to expect the same type of culture or freedom or flexibility you'd get at Google. But acknowledging that it's important and try to identify what work-life balance can mean for you and for people joining your organization, that's already good enough. And, and, and purpose is the same thing. You know, if you're in healthcare, it's easy to say, well, our purpose is to develop vaccines or medical devices that will save lives. You know, if you're a bank or if you're a telecom or, you know, it, it, may, it may be a little less uh, cut, uh, clear cut. But nonetheless, I think if companies sit down and say, okay, you know, how is it that people that work for us can fulfill, you know, their purpose? How is it that we're contributing to the greater good? I think if COVID showed us anything is that we're super interconnected. And so, you know, uh, you know corporations have a huge um, opportunity to, to create impact in whichever way. You know, it, it does raise in my mind a parallel, which is the education sector, mm. right? And, and you, you watch for years as, you know, educa educators sit around and, and, you know, twiddle their thumbs and say, really, we need to have more student-centric learning. You know, enough of this top-down. Let's let the students build the agenda. Let them ex have experiential learning come into play. Um, you know, let, let's reform the way we educate people for the workplace instead of, you know, to generate some higher degree. And yet, year after year, decade after decade, it stays the same. And the reason it stays the same is because parents, to a large degree, yeah. say, well, the system I went through and got me to be successful today yeah. was good enough for me, therefore it's good enough for you. Yeah. Apply that same logic to the world of, of you know, uh, generational issues that exist within corporations. And as much as you, I listen to you talk about this, I worry about the practicalities of actually making it happen. Why is it different in a corporate setting? 
Well, I mean, in a corporate setting, it's different because, like I said, organizations need to bring this talent on board and they need to be able to grow the business. And I mean, wherever you turn nowadays, you read that, you know, it, you, 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 don't, you don't make a business, you know, you don't grow a business, you grow the people and the people are the ones to grow your business. So, you know, whether organizations realize that this is something that is, that is good and needs to be done and it's an approach that is, that is right and fair or whether companies do it because they have their own agendas or they just want to make sure to continue to be competitive. Uh, the fact and the matter is that they will have no choice to change. And uh, and we're seeing it every day. I still struggle with, with organizations or HR professionals who tell me that, you know, they find the best possible talent out there with the best kind of combination of skills. And they still meet resistance because, you know, they may not have graduated from that Ivy League or from the alma mater of the business leaders or managing directors. Um, but the reality is that I think we're realizing it very quickly. Things are moving at a, at a pace that I think none of us really anticipate. And the reality is none of us has the answer. But what we do know is that we need everybody's strengths and everybody's skills in order to be able to, to, to move ahead, to, to transform. And, and companies realize that with COVID more than ever now. What, what, is there any possibility that baby boomers, the senior executives in these companies, should they not be given some quarter, you know, and recognized for what they've achieved, you know, um, people understanding their challenges and issues. Um, you know, it seems like whatever the millennials want, the millennials should get. Yeah. And, and, and I understand why that's good for an organization. I'm not questioning it. I hear it, particularly in these changing yeah. times. But at the same time, you know, we do, don't we, don't we owe it to this, this senior generation of people to say, what are your challenges and issues? And, and where or can we meet in the middle? Doesn't that sound reasonable or is that just uh, old school thinking? Oh, no. And I'm so glad you mentioned this. I think this is super important. I mean, it's a must. And I think, you know, the, the, the lack of, 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 of doing this or the fact that this hasn't actually been addressed now for the last 15 years is a big contributor to intergenerational conflicts in the workplace. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it was done out of um, contempt. And I don't think it was done on purpose. But I feel that as companies struggled to win the war for talent and position themselves as this, you know, ideal organization organization to an entire new generation that was actually also the largest generation in history at that point, um, they just kind of forgot or took for granted the people that were already in the workplace. So, you know, they started to think about how to recruit millennials, how to uh, make them happy, how to train them, how to develop them, how to uh, make them feel uh, empowered and how to, uh, you know, make them feel valued. Um, and all the while, I think they failed to connect the dots and explain to the generations in the workplace why this was important and their role in all of this. And likewise, they forgot to also explain to the generations coming in what workforce they would encounter. And, and I don't think this is something that was done on purpose, but it was a big misstep, in my opinion, that did contribute to a lot of these generational dynamics because fundamentally, millennials were shoved down people's throats. I mean, you had baby boomers, an executive that had worked for 50 years and were trained that leadership was something different and gave it their all. And, you know, all of a sudden, and they feel that they need to accommodate to an entire new generation of youngsters who come in feeling you're, or, or coming across as so entitled and all the while it's not made clear uh, you know, how valuable all their contributions are even now and even going for future in the future uh, for the organization. Um, so it, yeah, it's absolutely critical. 
I mean, it feels to me like um, what's really breaking down here is communication. Yeah. Um, there's just not the right kind of conversations happening within the organization. You say, uh, in some way, you used it hasn't been explained to people, but in some ways, it has to be understood. And understanding only comes through dialogue. How and why should a company invest? at this time and stage, particularly in the midst of economic crisis, COVID and everything else, when it's just trying to get the job done. I mean, is this something that, you know, uh, there's more that can be gained from investing in this space now, or should we be giving everybody a bit of a break right now? You know, not that it's it's good to put it off, but recognize that, you know, it, 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 these, these are nice to haves, but it, it's going to be a struggle to deliver on this in a really thoughtful way in the next few years. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think in that giving everybody a break um, equals actually kind of going back to the drawing board and, and, and listening to everybody and kind of give everybody an opportunity to uh, rethink themselves and rethink the way that they, they work with one another. I mean, I, I think that comes in in hand. I, I don't think that this should come with an additional level of pressure. Mm. I think, if anything, it should take the pressure off. Um, I think up until today, you know, you know, existing generations in the workplace have continued to, you know, work and perform, you know, while undergoing a series of challenges themselves because fundamentally, when you talk to the workforce, whether you're talking to, you know, senior executive baby boomers or you're talking to, you know, quote unquote entitled millennials, everybody has fears and everybody has challenges. And I think, um, you know, these are very often kind of buried under the surface or ignored. Mm. And I think actually opening up and saying, well, maybe everything that's going on in the world right now and exactly the fact that we need to give everybody a break is the perfect time to just take a step back and, and be ourselves and talk about about exactly what that means. Um, I mean, I think I think there's no better time actually. So, so for that organization out there that's struggling to basically bridge this divide, specifically, what would you advise them to do? How do they get started? Where does this begin? Where's the ownership? Is it within the HR community? Is it within the uh, the line managers, um, the divisions? Is it does it start at the top with the CEO? <laughs> where, where, how do you actually practically move the agenda forward? Well, one thing I've learned in my, you know, 16-year advising company and employer branding is that, you know, e even though there is an ideal place for things to start, um, that may not always be the case, and it shouldn't be a showstopper. Um, I think it should start, uh, you know, wherever the commitment is. You know, very often these initiatives, these movements, they start from the bottom. When I was helping companies uh, with their employer branding practices, you know, even though we would have loved for them to be CEO mandates, that was very seldom the case. Very often these were initiatives that were spearheaded by recruiting teams or campus recruiters. Um, and I think likewise with generational diversity, I think, you know, it can come from anywhere. It can come from the committed business leader who really wants to be able to bring together their multi-generational team. It could be from the HR teams who decided that, hey, we really need to make this a big topic on our agenda. It could be CEOs. It could be anywhere. So I think, you know, it, it, it you know, wherever it can come from, it's, 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 it's great. Um, the way companies can address it, I think, is just to recognize it. First of all, I think it's really important to realize that generational diversity is diversity. Um, I get blown away because so frequently I talk to organizations who tell me, you know, we're not really allowed to talk about this or we're not allowed to use the word older generation or newer gen or younger generation because, you know, people will take offense. So we can't use those terms in the workplace. And it just seems to me like everybody's walking on eggshells or, or trying to, you know, hide under, you know, hide the, the sun under the, behind their thumb, as we as we say. But the reality is generational diversity is 
diversity. You have, you know, four, if not five generations in the workplace. And for everybody who's ever had a relationship, I mean, you know how difficult relationships are. And when you add, you know, generational diversity, you add an additional layer of complexity that it's very much real. So I think, you know, acknowledging it is the first step. Um, I think companies realizing that it's time to talk about it and actually make it a part of their diversity and inclusion agenda is key. And then I think, you know, giving everybody a voice. And to give everybody a voice, the best thing is to start addressing the topic. Uh, intergenerational conflicts are very real. And even though companies don't talk about it, they're still there. So I've seen companies, you know, have a tremendous amount of success by just bringing the organizations together and just start talking about this topic. I do a lot of, you know, cross-generational awareness session where I just kind of share with sometimes thousand employees at once, you know, across all generations, what are the fears of multi-generational workforce? How is it that baby boomers are intimidated by the younger generations? And how are the younger generations intimidated by the boomers? What is everything fearful of? What are the strengths and, and difficulties that we're mm. each experiencing with each other? And just bringing that to everybody's attention, to a certain extent, just you know, it, it, it doesn't make it a taboo anymore, and it makes it something that everyone can relate to. You're saying just relax a little bit, pull back and calm down and just have a conversation. But, you know, it, it's to some degree, um, it's hard, right? Because everyone's worried about stepping in a big pile of it. Like, you, you just don't want to make a mistake because there are repercussions. Yeah. Uh, some are severe. I mean, the whole cancel culture is something which is terrifying a lot of senior people who really are trying, but they're just, you know, not skilled in many ways on bridging uh, these gaps or asking the right questions or addressing things. There's just, there's just there seems to be um, a whole world of education needs to occur at the top. But I, then my feeling is also that maybe the millennials and the others need to just give people a little bit of a break here in order to be able to figure it out, right? Some space, if you will. Um, and and if I guess I guess the environment into which you enter in order to have those conversations is as important as what you learn when you're in the conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really feel for, for you know, the, the existing generations in the workplace. And, you know, I myself am one of them because, you know, frankly, there's a lot of pressure right now to be able to become the perfect leader or the perfect manager to an entire new generation of talent. But in reality, we had very little examples and we'd never experienced this on our own skin. Um, so absolutely, I think it goes both ways. I mean, uh, you know, I was talking to some Gen Xers, uh, Gen Zers recently, and it's interesting because, you know, they were absolutely baffled when I talked to them about what my experience entering the workforce was, when I talked to them about the fact that I was comfortable waiting, you know, eight, ten years before getting a significant promotion, where I wasn't even allowed to listen into a important meeting, even as a spectator, because, you know, that was way out of my competence zone, um, you know, where I was literally told, and this is something I will always remember by my father when I, when I was entering the workforce, I remember he told me, you know, remember the one rule in the workplace, you know, never be friend anyone. Remember that it's always an interview, even if you're in a social context, even if they make you believe that it's, you know, you can be yourself, you're always being interviewed. You know, don't ever befriend anyone because at the end of the day, everybody's after that job and no friendship is going to save you from being thrown to the curb the minute you're no longer, um, you know, in useful to the business. And so I think it's interesting because when you, when you share these things with a young generations, they are completely mind blown. They do not understand that. So what happens is that when they enter the 
workforce and they meet someone like me and perhaps you know it's I'm not as comfortable um, you know socializing for example to the extent that they do or for example you know I get a little confused or a little baffled when they talk about wanting to be promoted after one year you know the confirmation bias kicks in and all of a sudden well look at that Gen Xer she's self-important you know she doesn't want to mingle she's not authentic and look she doesn't care to get us developed she, she doesn't want to and little do they know that I mean that's something that is just so different from what I have experienced and I think a little bit of contextual understanding it goes a long way both ways because with this knowledge and this understanding when a Gen X or when a Gen Z or a millennial comes into the workforce and they experience the baby boomer who expects them to work you know longer hours if they only understood that this is a generation that was expected to work you know 20 hour days and in Japan I mean we, we, we heard it I mean people were you know sleeping in, in, in subway stations and, and because coming home you know early was 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 a sign of was almost disgraceful I mean then I think they would have a lot more um, a lot easier time understanding that these people don't really mean to get you but they're just struggling as much as you are to to find their space in a complete new setting. It, it, it's hard not to overthink this. <laughs> There's so many different dynamics and twists and turns and, and possible, you know, bungee sticks waiting at the bottom of the, each little pit, right? It, it feels like it takes some navigation skill as much as anything, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I always laugh about it because when I when I support organizations with this or teams, I, I feel like a couple's therapist. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and it's really the same thing. I mean, you have the older generations come in, oh, now you're going to talk to us about these millennials once again like we haven't heard it enough and then you have the millennials coming in oh this old you know these traditional uh, you know people with uh, you know old age mindset and so on and so forth uh, but in reality they are all craving the opportunity to connect and in all the studies that I've done and and most recently with thousands of people uh, 99.6% of the workforce across generations want to work with one another. Mm. They want to work with people that are generationally diverse. So the desire is there. The, 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 the dream or the ambition or the hope that they will be able to work together and at the same time, you know, both feel equally heard, equally valuable, equally respected, equally needed, um, is there. Mm. Um, so I think, like you said, it's a matter of relaxing. If organizations say, listen, you know, being old or being young, being older or being younger, it, it's not necessarily good or bad. Everything comes with its up and down. And, and I think it's really only by combining, you know, this kind of ambition, drive, social mindedness, tech savviness of the young generations with the, you know, plethora of knowledge, of experience, of resilience, of ability to navigate uh, difficulties and solve problems of the older generations that organizations are really going to be able to thrive. Mm. Um, I, I think this is the future, and I think it, it can also change the world. I, I heard the word hope, so we're going to stick with that. Raquel, thank you so much for taking time out. Fantastically interesting subject. We wish you all the success. Thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with Rachele Focardi, founder of XYZ at Work and author of the new book, Reframing Generational Stereotypes. One thing for sure, there's no lack of research or reporting on generational divides when it comes to millennials. Wherever you look, some organization or research outfit has chimed in on the subject. I list and link to a half dozen or more of them in this week's Inside Asia newsletter. I've read them, all of them, and while some emphasize generational attitudes and others' levels of productivity, they pretty much all agree on the following three points. One, millennials are self-proclaimed change makers. Two, 
They care about issues, not institutions. And three, they are collaborators by nature who see strength in collective action. Better yet, these tendencies are largely universal. Asian millennials have lagged their Western counterparts to some degree, but there's every indication that social justice looms large. That can and does include topics like equality and inclusion, environment and sustainability, as well as political and human rights. On the face of it, we should all rejoice at the thought of a more conscientious group of global citizens who think past careers, family, and income. That moniker goes to the baby boomers, I of whom am one. I can claim innocence that my failure to be more conscientious in recent decades has helped fuel the triple crisis of pandemic, materialism, and environmental decline, but it doesn't change the fact that here we are. It's not that we weren't aware of these issues, it's that we didn't prioritize them. Apparently, millennials are different. They want to put the emphasis on social action. From a corporate perspective, if that means reprioritizing to some degree, then so be it. Which brings us back to corporate purpose, and on this point, there's good news. Research shows that organizations need not trade profit for purpose. Both, indeed, can coexist. Doing well by doing good has the advantage of infusing an organization with curiosity, passion, and commitment, which by default translates into a happier, healthier, and more engaged workforce. Done right, profit ensues. It's counterintuitive, really, but fair warning, any attempt to use purpose to drive profit can and will raise the ire of employees, young and old, who increasingly are holding their organizations accountable and calling for real change. Cross-company communication is key, according to Ficardi. We touch on this point in the conversation that too often the demands and expectations of millennials are put forward with the blind expectation that their wants and needs must be met. Little accommodation is made for senior executives who on their terms feel like they've sacrificed a lot to support the interests of their organizations, only to be told that their methods are no longer effective or respected. What we need, say leadership experts, is a greater degree of two-way traffic, where the best ideas trickle up from younger employees and the most essential ideas remain intact from the top. After all, the integrity of a corporation and the support of its shareholders means that profits must prevail. Without them, you can kiss purpose goodbye. That's it for this week's episode. We thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 170 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. Each week, we plan to introduce a topic or trend that shows how innovation and corporate purpose can align and profitably. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussions, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. Want to start a discussion? Leave us a message on any of our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. Until next week, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.